1: Well, the football might have stopped, but we still want our football fixed. So the Gagapod's taking a trip down memory lane this week and for the next couple of weeks to share some great football stories, have a yarn with a couple of our football legends and keep you entertained during these long and strange old days. David Arena with you for Gagapod in conversation today with me in Sydney, Luke Wilkshire in Wollongong, Michael Bridges in Newcastle. I can't wait to see where this is going to go. So let's get stuck in. Yeah, hi, everyone, and thanks for listening. Hope you and yours are are well and safe and you're looking just for a little bit of fun. We're going to lighten the mood over the next uh, little while and and just chat, see where we go and and have this great conversation about uh, yesteryear because that's what we're doing on the Optus Sport app at the moment. We're looking down uh, some of the great Premier League eras and some of the great Champions League games and basically just enjoying ourselves while there's no live football and while we've got a bit of time on our hands. Um, boys, great to have your company today uh, in isolation, probably in our PJs. Uh, who knows? Keep it to yourselves. But, uh, Bridgie, how are you travelling? Yeah,
2: I'm doing very well, thanks, Dave. Um, like you say, very, very strange times and um, in the situation that we are currently living in, mate, but we've got to embrace it and we've got to do what we can. And it's actually been really refreshing to spend so much time with the family and the kids and just come up with novelty ideas uh get, getting some structure around their life and how their lives changed um i haven't been taking my children to school i've been keeping them at home with with myself while my my wife goes out and is actually school teaching so we've had some fun we've had some arguments we've had some um, great little ideas so all in all at this moment in time we are still uh one very peaceful and happy family for
1: um, <laughs> how long that lasts I don't know. So far at this time the very nice little caveat there Bridget oh, well you've been very busy on social media though at least I know what your next career is if uh, if we, if the football never starts up again some great little insights and uh, I'll be picking your brain on your jersey collection in this episode but that got a good little response. Yeah it did mate it was nice to go through the, the cupboards classic
2: football shirts boys over in the UK who we did a Segment with Fought Off the Sport um, a few years back with Sporty when we went to their warehouse, they got in touch and said, You know, get your shirts out was the hashtag. So I thought, Why not? And it was interesting to, to dust off all the cobwebs and things from ones that I haven't got on the wall and just have a, a bit of a blast in my past,
1: mate. So yeah, it was nice, brought a tear to my eye. Blast from the past is what we will do today. Uh, Luke, school's out. It's morning tea, recess, lunch. Uh, you've dismissed the class for the morning with the kids, and you've spent some time with us. How are you, mate? Welcome.
0: Yeah, I'm doing all right, mate. Uh, you know, a little, little bit like Bridgie. There, it's, it's nice to speak to someone. You know, other than my wife and my children, as much as I love them. <laughs> you know, the last, the last, the last ten days, we've been, uh, we've been pretty much locked down and, and had the kids home from school. So. Look, I I take my hat off to teachers because it it isn't easy. Um, you know, my daughter teaching her kindergarten stuff is is challenging enough for me. But, um, but look, it is, it's it's tough times and, you know, we're, we're together. We're healthy and and similar to Bridgie, you know, spending so much time at home, it's, it's been great. Um, but obviously for, for a wrong reason and we have to get through this and we will all together.
1: Here, hear. Well said. And one of the ways we'll do that is providing a bit of fun. So um, hopefully, I'm sure everyone listening uh, has checked out a little bit on the Sport app or platforms at the moment or social pages. Our, our season reviews, uh, goals of the season, retrospective clips. It's been a fabulous throwback to, for me, my teenage years and, and staying up late at night and watching all those great moments. And for you guys... You were That was your life. That was where you were in those years. And we go back to, well, I'm going to choose 2005 because that's a good starting point for me because that's the year Chelsea won the Premier League and ended a half a century drought. But, drought. but for you, gentlemen, your paths crossed. Take us back to Bristol City, Bridgie,
2: 2005. Yeah, I'd actually um, gone to Sunderland the previous season with Mick McCarthy. And uh, we got promoted to the Premier League, and I was, you know, delighted to play another part in the, in a promotion season um in that year. But then the following year, the reality struck home that they had spent quite a lot of money on three or four strikers, and Mick McCarthy was absolutely fantastic, to be fair to him. Um he actually got me in the office and said, Listen, Bridgie said, you know, you're great around the dressing rooms. Um it's it's a pleasure to have you here. You've got another year's contract, but I've signed three strikers and basically you're not going to play mate so he says, there's there's a few options you can stay here hang around and pick your money up because you're not a bad egg he said but if you want to go on and further career, I'll help you um get get a club you know and we'll get you get you out on loan or you can sign somewhere else and I remember having a chat with Gary Breen who was the captain at Sunderland at the time and I spoke to Breeny in the dressing room I said what do I do he says don't don't go anywhere mate he says there might be injuries, there might be suspensions. He said we might have a bad start, you'll get a chance somewhere. And he said it's a, it's a massive club, so stay here. Anyway, I didn't listen to Bruni, and um, you know I thought we'll go and have a look around and Bristol City came up and that's where me and Lukey Cross passed down there at Bristol City, it was the club that I signed for. And Marcus Stewart was another striker who left Sunderland at the same, similar time to Mick McCarthy and myself. And Stewie rang us and said, listen, Mick said the same to you. Get yourself down here to, um, as they call it, the kind of tractor land. So I went down with.
0: Bridgie, is it true that um, that I was a major drawing card in them getting you to go down and sign at Bristol City to come and play alongside me?
2: Well, look, you've just interrupted. the racks. you're going to come to that part, mate. That's what I was going to say. <laughs>
0: and I actually, see
2: a name like Luke Wiltshire Dave, on the on the squad. I just thought that it's only one place I want to go,
1: mate. <laughs> <laughs> Why well, did you end up there, Luke? Because you you're you breaking through at this point. You're a couple of years younger than than Bridgie at the time. You'd been at Middlesbrough, um, had a crack at the sort of Premier League tier, um, how did you end up down at Bristol City and seeing, we jest, but seeing a name like Bridgie there and some of the others, um, did that make you think that was your way to to build your way up the the, the football tier?
0: Yeah, well, the thing with me, obviously, that was um, 2005 was my last year of the three years uh, that I spent at Bristol City. So I've been there a couple of years before Bridgie come down and, you know, I left Middlesbrough just purely to play. I um, I had another year on my contract at Middlesbrough in the Premier League, but I was in and out uh, Steve McLaren, uh, when I went, I'd played enough games to renegotiate, uh, he chose not to. He said, I've got one more year. He said, we'll leave it as it is. And I wasn't happy with that and wanted to play regularly. So so I decided to leave Middlesbrough. Uh, Bristol City was a big club, hoping to get promoted. Didn't quite work out. And yeah, to be honest, it was the worst three years of football in my, my career. But in saying that, um, you know, I, I learned a lot and, and met some great people you know, yeah, along the way.
1: That's funny. Worst three years, is that because it's everything? We don't see a lot of football down in that tier. We certainly didn't 15 years ago. Is it the worst in that the stereotype of what we would define that football as is true and it's even harder when you're in the middle of it?
0: Yes, it was tough. I went down there expecting to win League One, so I was hoping to get promoted. Uh, straight up to the championship. You know, I thought I'd take one step back, which is championship, but Bristol were League one at the time and I thought, okay, I actually had some championship clubs I could have gone to, but I chose Bristol City thinking that they would go straight up with uh, Danny, Danny Wilson at the time and it didn't happen and then he was gone and the managers changed. So I went through, I think it was three managers over the course of those three years and, and obviously my good mate, Gary Johnson, the last year of my, my contract there was probably the, the worst one of, of all. It, okay. You know what it is. It? When
2: when I actually look back at the time, um, what Luke's just said there ring, rings, you know, so many alarm bells for me. You actually see Bristol City. Um, it was a it was a big club. Ashton Gate had a fantastic fan base. It was a big stadium, um, and you know they had a great bit of history behind them. And it wasn't till I actually got there and took as a, a great set of players, great lads. Um, Scotty Murray was the clown of the dressing room. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, he he was just the prankster of all pranksters, he, he, and he made the place, the environment that it was. It was just a, you you enjoyed coming into training just to see Scotty and see what him. who was the Lewis Carey was the captain at the time,
0: wasn't it? Luke. Yeah, yeah, Louis Carey was another character. Him and Scotty were the two. Um, you know, it was, it was obviously plenty of them. You know, but um, but yeah, they were the two, and and they were local boys um, that were sort of yeah, the heart and soul of the club. They were.
2: And they were was it to all? keep everything was it all going Dave, they were trying to keep everything going there at the club, but behind the scenes, like Luke says, with the managers that he'd been with previously, Brian Tinian signed me, and mm. it didn't last very long. He signed a few other players, and then the what happens when the manager signs you and he he moves on, he gets sacked. It was a bad start of the season, but I think it was his first ever real top job. So it was so yeah. disorganized. It was it was just a pure wish wash, and I'd come from. A club that suddenly was so organised. We were disciplined. We were regimented. We knew where we were going. We had goals and targets. This was a really young manager that didn't have a have an idea of where he wanted to go. He was he was just lost. And the players that he signed, um, including myself, Kate, then the next manager that comes in, and that was Gary Johnson, wasn't it? Luke? and he he, <laughs> he wanted out the players that the previous manager had just brought in. Yeah, right. And it, it was just a snowball effect. It and it, the atmosphere was. Absolutely toxic um, behind the scenes, but inside the dressing room, it was pretty fantastic. But, but
0: you know you know, with that, and you, you talk about obviously Tinian, he, he signed players like yourself who had experience and some players who had character. Um, so when Gary Johnson came in, he wanted the opposite. He wanted to be the big dog. He didn't like the fact that he had players in that change room that were possibly bigger and better than where he's ever been. Um, so he tried to belittle those players. And I, I felt that come across, you know, I remember, I remember one instance in the change room, he would walk around saying, with his little um, little cheap Rolex saying, oh, maybe one day he'll have one of these to some of the boys and things like this. Um, and that's where it sort of fell apart. So there was, there was a lot of conflict, like, say, behind the scenes. You know, he was a dictator, you know, wasn't he, Luke? He tried he, to, tried he to was. dictate everything. Yeah, he was. And, you know, it didn't wash, you know. Some, some would just soak it up and then others wouldn't, which, which then obviously caused a bit of a, a problem, but that was purely with him and off the pitch more so than the changing room. Because like Prudji said, actually inside the changing room was And what he tried phenomenal. to do, Dave, phenomenal.
2: I remember some of his sessions, what Gary used to try and do when he first came in as a manager, um, like he says, was to be- try and get the the players that had come in from the high divisions, like myself, Luke Wilkshire, Marcus Stewart, um, Matty, Matty Hayward, big centre-half. He tried to get them all you know, offside them and, and out them and was thinking because we were older players, he would be able to just say to the lads, we're going to do some fitness tests and run years and he was hoping that he could get an out and make us finish last in the running or whatever it was in these long-distance runs around this, I'll never forget the university I think it was and <laughs> the sad thing is, when you've played at the top level and you've got a, you've got an ambition and you've got an idea, you've got a mindset, it, it takes a lot to become a professional footballer Uh, You've got to be mentally strong. And that's what he underestimated because... Myself, Luke, Marcus Stewart, absolutely blitzed the running with all the younger ones, and were in the in the front pack lead. And, and you could see him scratching his head, thinking, "Well, this one hasn't worked. How the hell am I going to how the hell can I get them out next time?"
1: <laughs> Does that uh, become like a almost a, a game within a game? Like you've got a manager that comes in, and, and you've obviously got you you, you, you want to have success on the park as an individual, and then for the team. But then you can see you're actually you, you're fighting for your you're fighting for your you know, your own dignity and reputation there. Um, a, does that, Bridgie, does that um, galvanize you as a person? But B, in your career, has that experience tended to see the manager have the group becomes like school kids behind his back and almost bandied together in spite of him? Yeah, what had happened, it's, you, you roll your sleeves up when you want to prove that
2: manager wrong, but it's more of a personal gain. And a personal vendetta against that person because he's got one against you. It doesn't become a team and a collective, um, if that makes any sense. And what he did, he segregated it. He really divided the dressing room, and that, that was yeah, right. There was the five players that weren't involved. The, the lads knew they were good lads, so the. And then it becomes: oh, are we allowed to go and socialise? Are we allowed to be seen with them at the training ground? If yeah. Gary sees us with them, then is he going to not pick us? It, it becomes really childish, mate. And it was all due to the manager, um, Gary Johnson, that came in and did this. Because if he'd have actually embraced the players that he had, we could have had success at Bristol City a lot earlier.
0: 100%. We, um, like I say, you look at the group and the players we had. Um, you know, for me personally, in, in that time, obviously, when he come out, took took over, I was playing up until Christmas. They, they wanted me to sign a new contract. We just qualified for the World Cup in, um, in Germany in 2006. He didn't like that. Um, I didn't want to stay because I'd had a bad two and a half years and wanted to get out of there. So obviously asked for money that I knew the club couldn't pay. He then had a vendetta against me because he wanted me to sign. Um, and then that was it. From that moment, it just turned pear shaped. I was out of the team. I was on the bench for the reserves. Um, and you talk about the the group, the squad that we had, um, you know, and how you take it. Like I literally turned up for a reserve game and I was on the bench. And um, I, went, I remember going out the Ashton Gate and I went into his office and I had a blow up with him for a couple of minutes. And I sucked it up, and I went and I sat on the bench. I come in at halftime, and the boys had put my shirt on the skeleton (laughs) in the change
2: room.
0: So there was still humour in it, but I, um, I just, I trained and trained, and it was such a mental thing um, with him. I don't think I ever worked so hard. You know, it was one of them where you, you, you you have a bad moment. You can sit and you think, geez, do I need to just pack up and go home? This is not working. I'm in League One and on the bench for the reserves. Or you just suck it up and you keep going. And I had that little sniff of the national team, um, still to look forward to. And, you know, like I said, I think I was training three or four times a day. Um, just that mental approach when you talk about you don't want to let him break yet, or you don't want
1: to, I didn't want to let him win um and ruin my career I'll, I'll touch on the national team a bit more in a second but was that what got you through it in this instance like you said and we see now so many uh, people return back to the a league um you didn't have that option but was it the national team that kept you going because otherwise what where do you turn to if you feel like you're literally being bullied into you know the, the back corner
0: yeah, you are, and you know you're just a you're a little pawn over there. You know, a young Aussie kid who's in League One at the time, and if he stopped playing me, which he did for six months, um, it's tough. It's tough to move. Um, you know, and, and it was the national team that I clung on to, because obviously Graham Arnold had seen me. He uh, didn't took over and wanted to see everyone who had been in and around the setup and judged by him for himself. Um, And fortunately enough, you know, we had a good training camp in Holland for a couple of weeks training and he saw enough in me to to keep bringing me
1: into camp. Come back to that in a second because there's a lot we want to talk about there. But just in terms of um, the way Gary Johnson was, Bridgie, was that a one in a million, just an absolute shocker? Were there other coaches like that through your career? How did that kind of management style stack up to others? I mean, you mentioned Mick McCarthy, Luke, you mentioned Steve McLaren. Um, Was was that just a shocker or or is that something that, it was rife at the time at that level. No, that
2: was the only time I'd ever come across it um, in the UK with this the the kind of mentality that you had. You come you come across great managers that have got their doors open, like I say, Mick McCarthy, Bobby Robson. You could always walk into their office, uh, give them a knock on the door. It was, you know, come on in, lads. Gary Johnson didn't have the that kind of. Um, demeanour, he was just all about bullying whereas there was a, you know, you get others like Phil Brown, we crossed paths and me and Phil Brown didn't didn't get on because I couldn't handle the arrogance side of it tactically a genius um, he didn't treat people like Gary Johnson did but he still didn't handle it correctly when he was um, once he didn't want you as part of his team if, if, if he'd handled that side better um, Phil Brown it would have been so much better but Gary was just a unique specimen mate, he was it was incredible. The best one for me. Uh, Luke, did we used to go to the Italians called San Carlo? Or was it San Lucas? Yeah, yeah, yep, San Carlo. So me and Luke became, you know, really really good mates off the field. When we used to go for lunch after training, we go to a place called San Carlo. See, we were two guys that were real elaborate Italian uh, waiters that would come and serve. I used to always love the calf sliver that they did there. And, you know, it was just a nice atmosphere to get away from the shitty atmosphere that had been at the training camp. <laughs> So <laughs> you know, the funniest part about this this bit, I'll never forget coming into train about a month a month later after me and Luke had been going to San Carlo and Gary Johnson obviously was thinking, Oh, I've got another idea here. Because somebody spotted me and Luke and thinking that we, we weren't the team because we had big jugs of red wine during lunchtime. Well actually it was it was ribena diluted with water, but people thought we were guzzling jugs of red wine during lunchtime with our families and um, were able just to go in and train in the afternoons. So Gary decided to make a big point about, you know, me. I used to go there with Luke and I always used to go there with a player called Bradley O. And Gary Johnson thought I was drinking like 10 kegs of red wine a day. So again, <laughs> just making up his own crap as he went along. It was brilliant.
1: Right, Bina, oh. that And that, that, that's what you're still doing now too, right? That That's always just been this has been a, a cover-up. Oh, no. That, that, no
0: that, go on, Luke. <laughs> That's what I tell my kids now. I'm just having some Arbita.
1: Very good. Hey, Luke, Luke to you first, but to both of you, who was the best man manager you guys had in your career? Because if that was the absolute shocker, um, what was a good manager like um, when they took you under your wing, under their wing? Uh, For
0: for me, I think one of of the best ones, you know, that I really enjoy playing under was um, his name Bozovic. He, he was my coach at uh, the manager in, in Dinamo, one of my Dinamo days. Uh, so, you know, he literally his first his first session he took over. He'd been to another club in Moscow before FC Moscow, and he come to Dinamo, and he ob- he obviously knew the team our team pretty well. And he rocked up the first day on the trainer field, and he's just everyone there, and he's addressed the boys, and he says, on a Monday don't go to Soho, on a Thursday don't go to Rye. And he rattled it off all these restaurants and clubs in the city, and told us what nights nice not to be there because he would be there. <laughs> 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 Honestly, it just broke the ice, and he was he was so so relaxed. Every day we come to the to and boxes would be there. We'd start with boxes. People just wanted to get on the pitch with him. Uh, he was approachable. He he was yeah. So for me, you know, he was always fighting for the boys. He was always into bats. Um, against the club for the boys, and um, yeah, so it, it was definitely one of my best ones.
2: And the, <laughs> that's brilliant. To be fair, that
0: was the honesty that you loved about him, eh? Yeah, it was. It was. And and honestly, I was probably three or four years after he got the boot and he gone. And the boys, uh, he was at Rostov, I believe. He went to Rostov, and they were playing against Spartak Moscow. So they come on the Saturday, obviously from Rostov to stay in Moscow. Saturday to play Sunday. Um, we played on a Saturday so the boys are gone out to the nightclub um, and at two in the morning there he is we bumped into him and he's coming <laughs> over to say hello to the boys and his team had to play the next day
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I, my, my managers weren't as honest as that about where they were hanging around but I'll give you three managers that had the you know the key ingredients that I've taken on board over the years yeah, Bobby Robson yeah. wasn't hands on because he was at the end of his, his career um, in management and obviously struggling with his um, he's, he's cancer issues again, bless him. But he was just like the father figure and the mentor that every person in life should have. It was, You could talk to him at any time you want. He was lighthearted. He would be serious and he would make fun. Um, And just a, the aura of the man was sensational. Then there was this Sam Allardyce era when I was at Boat and Wanderers when I had never seen anybody work as methodical regarding the technology that was coming into the game the being able to have dieticians nutritionists sports scientists and also a psychologist and I'd been at Leeds for so many years and we played Champions League semi-finals and we'd never used anything like this technically yes, but I'd never seen anything regarding the stats and the figures so he was well ahead of his time that's what I loved about about Sam and the, the, the third one was David O'Leary, because similar to what Luke was saying, we would always do a recovery session on a Sunday morning. And our first 10 or 15 minutes of the recovery session was David O'Leary wanting to know what everybody got up to the night before. Now, he knew that we were a very, very young team. We always used to go out into um, Leeds or into Headley where the students were and have a right good time. And David just wanted some stories from the lads on the nights out and who they'd actually managed to get, to get <laughs> hold of and um, entertain and dance with that night. So he was he was obviously living his youth life through the young lads that were there and he could have a chat with Alan Smith. So.
1: But he certainly got you guys on board. That was that that for looking from an outside in, for particularly those golden years, um it looked to have worked. Yeah, he got the buy-in because we used to get excited to come in on a Sunday morning to tell
2: the gaffer what we'd actually been doing the night before. <laughs> Hey, Bridget, was Big
1: Sam misunderstood?
2: Yes, in so many ways. And I think Sam could have evolved. I mean, he he was methodical. He had a game plan um, at Bolton Wanderers where he used Kevin Davies and Kevin Nolan, who were two big powerhouses. And then he bought quality around them. Now, he didn't use the quality like (laughs) JJ and Yuri Joikov as much as he could have done in Henrik Pedersen. But the game plan we had that I witnessed when I was there for a short period of time was was incredible. I, I think Sam could have evolved and become um, a manager that wanted to play Tiki Tacky, but what he did, he he worked with the players that he has his disposal. He wasn't gonna go to a team and try and turn them into Real Madrid when he didn't have the caliber of players. So uh, I just think that he, he he was misunderstood in the way that his style of play over the years had affected him.
1: But I'll tell you what, what, success. We could do a whole podcast on, on Sir Bobby, but it would be remiss of me not to just ask you for a, 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 you know, particularly given where you're from, what it was like when he took charge of the very team you were playing in Newcastle United.
2: Yeah. It, oh, I mean, I was just watching an Optus Sport yesterday, um, the Newcastle United years with Alan Shearer and Bobby Robson, and Bobby was. It was just a, a special moment to see a, a local boy or a local manager go through and have so much success around Europe, and he, you know, what he what he did to actually come back to his hometown. He he was craving success, but he he'll always be respected. And it was just such an honour to be able to sit in that man's. Um, office when you didn't get selected as a substitute or part of the squad just to be able to sit there and, and listen to his stories and I mean one day Paul Gascoigne dropped in to say hi and he used to call Bobby his dad and you know I we, was well, just sitting like a fly on the wall me and Kieran Dyer and we're just looking at each other in disbelief thinking Gazza and Bobby are just having a, a chat in front mm-hmm. of us like it's it was just so random mate and that's what I mean he's he's so well respected and to have a relationship like that with Bobby um, was incredible. Um, I'm allowed to tell the story, Dave, about my wife and Bobby.
1: Yeah, 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 let's do it.
2: Well, it was interesting because they said he was losing his marbles towards the end, bless him, because he, he had memory loss. He didn't. He used to test people. And he called me Gary um, instead of Michael. Now, whether that was Gary Caldwell or Gary Speed, you know, I, I, I don't mind because there, it was Bobby. He can say what he wants. And he also used to get Lee Boyer mixed up with the kit man. So he called him Neil and he called the Kitman man Lee. So, long long story, Bobby, He met my wife once in the players' lounge. And I said, Bobby, this is my wife, Kate. She's an Irish dancer with Michael Flatley. And now Bobby got all excited. Oh, my God. He said, can you teach can you teach Michael some quick feet, darling? Because he's very slow, you know. So, he, he just had this great personality and he, he remembered her. So, anyway, long, about four or five years later, we went to his charity golf day in Portugal. He's on the front of the plane. He invited all these ex-players um, that he had relationships with, all the press officers from her around Europe and we're on the plane he was coming up and introducing himself and saying thanks to everybody because we were off to Portugal to play golf and my wife turned to me and said um what do you think he's gonna gonna call you Gary or Michael and I said well it doesn't matter but I, I think you'll remember who I am Kate this time so anyway he came at the back of the plane lo and behold he called us Gary we started laughing and he said to me he turned to my wife and said hey Kate it's great to see you as well How's your dancing going? I said, Bob, I've got to stop you there, mate. I said, How do you remember her name, and you can't even remember remember mine? He says, Michael, if you had a pair of breasts like her, young man, I'd remember your name as well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he had me. he's such a top man. Outstanding story. That's all right. We can make is a PG rated podcast. That's fine. No problem. No problem. No problem. No problem. Oh, great stuff! Great stuff. Uh, Luke, you mentioned Steve McLaren before um, at Borough, and he, he was about to go on to a, a pretty high profile couple of years of his career. Um, your, what did you make of him as a as a boss?
0: Yeah, obviously he'd he come to Millsborough after obviously working under Alex Ferguson. So he, you know, sort of him taking taking the first time as a as a head as a manager, um, you know, look, he, he was okay for me. He was okay. I, I, I was in and out of the team with him. Like I said, in the end, I, I wasn't happy with the way he dealt with it, that, that management skills and, and obviously the young, some of the younger players, he, he lent more towards more of the senior players, I think. Um, me being one of the younger ones was sort of brushed aside a little bit. Um, so like I said, that was why I left. And funny enough, after I'd left at Middlesbrough, um, I spent three horrid years in Bristol and I went I went to F C twenty and then lo and behold he ends up at F C twenty. Yeah. Uh, just, just just when I'm when I'm about to move to when I got an offer to go to Dinamo Moscow. So all of a all of a sudden I was a main player and he was begging me to stay at F C twenty for him. Um so again the conversation was different and I think I was only with him for a
1: month in, in twenty and I left. <laughs> Funny, get, get out of there, get out of there, quick, fast. Um, just before we move on to to another topic, Bridget, I just want to know. You mentioned that um, you're at Sunderland and you took the gamble to go down into Bristol City, and then obviously you walked into the troubles that you did. Mentally, how big a challenge is it when you are at that elite level, and then you go down a couple of divisions and? You know, you, you've been at the very top, but you want to work your way back up. Back up. It's a different, you know, it's a different competition, different assets to that competition. Um, is that a really big mental adjustment?
2: Yeah, definitely, Dave. And I think that's when when you have played with players like your Harry Kules, your Mark Viduka's at Leeds United, Olivier Dacoz, Rio Fernandes. You're playing with some of the elite players in the world, and you, you, you're able to my game came on leaps and bounds. I was never a Leeds United Premier League footballer when I left Summon Football Club. I was a young up-and-coming player that I think Leeds had bought for the future. And Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank moved on and I was thrown in at the deep end. My game in training escalated like you wouldn't believe. And to to be part of that team so early on, I, I couldn't believe where my game had gone. I found it the opposite going down the divisions. It was so much harder because I wasn't playing with, the type of calibre of players, I lost my pace um, because of the injuries as well. So I had to adapt my game. You didn't get as much time on the ball, which I f- it sounds crazy, but the the, the defenders just seem to be so much tighter to you, the lower divisions, and kick kick lumps out of you. So I, I really found it hard um, initially when I was down in that division with uh, Bristol City and even more so when I went down to Carlisle United to go on loan there just to get my love of the game back and it took us about five or six games
1: hi
0: this is craig robinson from ways to win and support for this podcast comes from invesco qqq the official etf of the ncaa the future isn't scary not realizing its potential however could be just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
2: Carlisle, to actually start playing well. Um, I never got a run of games at Bristol because of, obviously, Gary Johnson, like me and Luke discussed. But the mindset of that, I couldn't work it out how and why it was harder, lower down than it was to play higher up yeah. and it's you know it was something that really had to change the way I played my game when I went down the divisions and I think that's also I think a lot of the lads nowadays find it harder to go from your Manchester City academies your Chelsea academies when they don't make the grade at senior level and they go down to the lower divisions they're being paid good money in the academies they've turned up in their bloody with the Porsches or the Ferraris, the Lamborghinis, they turn up with the Louis Vuitton wash bags down at the lower divisions. Sure. Straight away, you're going from an elite academy to training on some of the school fields or universities that the and getting changed in you know sheds <laughs> or yeah. stadiums, having to drive. And players can't play; young players can't handle that nowadays. Going from the elite, they've got to change the whole mindset. The players see them come to the car parks with these cars and wash bags and giving it Billy Big bollocks. And straight away that you've isolated yourself. So um, I had to change a lot of things when I went down to the to the lower divisions, and not trying to be um, in that mindset that I was an elite player because I wasn't.
1: Interesting stuff. Yeah, very interesting stuff. Now, now Luke, when when Biggie came down, as you mentioned a bit earlier, um, you did have a whiff that the national team was 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 looking at you. I want to go down that path now because. While you were in and around the setup a little bit, and, and Arnie had had spotted you, and Huss Hiddink was casting a very wide net to to make sure every Australian was on his radar. Um, when you were when you were picked at the time, uh, you, you know you were a little bit more unknown to the other guys, and it played such a seminal role uh, in Hitting's side. Can you take us back to that adventure when you realised that uh, this was in your in your lowest of lows at club level that you're about to go to the highest of possible highs.
0: Yeah, it was. And it, it, was, a, it was a very challenging year leading into it. Obviously, I'd, I'd been on the fringe of things with, with Frankie Farina, with the national team, um, when I was obviously at Middlesbrough and getting chances in the Premier League. So I was on the national team radar. But, you know, it was little flutters here and there. And then obviously when hitting took over, um, you know, I was fortunate that they, he did cast his net wide to so have a look and, and he, he took it you know, from his own eye, he, he wouldn't take it on someone else's word or, or just look at where you're playing. So that gave me a chance. And like I, I mentioned before, we had a training camp in Holland. Um, I did, did well, I did what what I do, and he liked the style that I, that I am, the way I am. He couldn't believe I was playing in League One. He actually was trying to look to help get me out of there sooner. Um, obviously with the qualification, again, I was still on the fringe of things with Hink. I was going into training camps and and not really playing or maybe getting on the bench so you know obviously the fact then when I stopped playing in League One um, we're challenging and I, I was very worried but it kept me going and like I said the, the sort of mental side of it um, I didn't want to let, let that I call him the little cockney um, I can't remember <laughs> the other word but, um, <laughs> but Daddy Johnson um, I wouldn't have let him um, you know defeat me I, I guess in a way and, and I wanted to get the, the better of him and you know, I was, I was fortunate that, that hitting kept bringing me in. And to be honest, when I got called into the squad, I was a little surprised because, you know, there was a lot of great plays around at the
2: time. Did
1: R- he? West Spunker. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking something else. I thought, I thought that, that that's polite. We could have run that one. Um, <laughs> was, was, was hitting a big communicator? Luke, I mean, it, did he pick you up and and give you that massive shot that made you feel ten feet tall, or was it the fact that you knew you were doing well and he kept going back? How did that all work that made you feel, you know, that you belong there?
0: Yeah, I think I think mainly was it was the fact that he kept calling me back into the squads. Um, he obviously a lot of it went through went through Arnie. That Arnie Arnie had spoken to me and was. In, I remember in the January after we'd qualified, he was looking to possibly bring me, like trying to get me out and get me to PSV possibly um, at the time. and wanted me to go to Holland. He thought that I would suit the style of football um, in Holland, So, but that didn't eventuate. So, so given the fact that, that that was coming from Arnie made me feel like, yeah, I've got a chance here, I've got a chance here, and he obviously saw something in me.
1: So Arnie was big around, he was probably working the phones around the world, sort of being the conduit to all the players and, 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 and sort of uh, putting the arm around you guys while didn't while, while was pulling the strings in the background? Yeah, 100%.
0: And I think, um, you know, obviously with Gus just coming in and Arnie knowing the players and knowing Australian football better, I think, um, you know, that's what it was. And, and I know that Arnie and, and Gus have a, a really good relationship.
1: So when you, when you walked into camp, there's a couple of players there that Bridgie knows a bit about, uh, a couple of players who I can tell you now where well, there's no football on. Uh, we have a very productive day at Optus Sport if we're throwing out highlights about uh, certain people like uh, Mark Viduca, Harry Kuehl, um, also, of course, Tim Cahill and, and Brett Everton and, and, and the rest. But um, Harry and Dukes, when you walked into camp and you saw and you played with them for the first time, um, what was that like?
0: Yeah, well, look, they're two, two legends of Australian football and, um, you know, I've got, I've got to be honest and Bridge will testify to this, two absolute top blokes as well, I think, um, you know, and talk about quality, I mean, not just Australian football, but I think all over the world, people would acknowledge um the quality that those two had and, you know, a lot of people say that Dukes is pretty much unplayable on his day and and he is, he, he can turn on a 10-cent piece in the size of him if he gets the ball, um, you know, unless he wants to give it to you, you're not going to get it off him and... And Haitian, his heyday, was one of the one of the world's best, uh, you know. And so obviously when you come into camp and you, you you get to play alongside that, Bridget spoke about it. If you're at the top playing in the Premier League, playing with better players, you rise and they, they bring you with them. Um, and you drop down with lesser players and it's, it's a bit tougher. So when you step in and you're playing with those kind of guys, it just helps you to bring your game to another level as well.
1: Bridget, you often tell the story, about, and you say it in jest, uh, but um, that when the Dukes came... To Leeds, you thought, uh oh, this guy, this guy's going to be a big contender for one of the striking positions. Um, in, all, in all seriousness, though, when you first saw him and then when you saw him at training, what did he do that others couldn't do? Like, just how good was he?
2: Yeah, like you said, Dave, I did get a bit of a shock. I was, he came in, there was a, a big fella with a, you know, he, he had this head on that I'd never seen anybody have before. It was ginormous. Okay. I thought, the last thing I want to do is upset the big man because he'll head us and that'll be the end of me. <laughs> um, but he, when you, you're thinking, how can this guy move? He's such a big fella. And once you saw the ball at his feet or the way that he was able to hold defenders off, I just looked and thought, my God, this is a, a target man that we are, we've are we needed because we, we struggled against some of the bigger defenders in Europe. And like when we came up against Arsenal, and um, when you've got Adams or Keon or Campbell physically, me and Alan Smith just weren't that dominant to hold them types of players off. And the Dukes came in; he gave us that new niche. And then I thought, wow, I can't see me and Smithy keeping our our place places because one of us is going to have to drop out because the big man was just so good when he had the ball at his feet. Even just in we call it Sheva Dave, where we have like the lads around the outside, two players in the middle chasing and you try and get the ball i'd never saw vadooks in the middle if you lose the ball i'd never saw him go in the middle because he never lost <laughs> it was phenomenal mate and i'm just thinking how am i gonna try and keep this fellow out the team well it was inevitable like I, I wasn't gonna be able to and um like i say vadooks went on to be that player the only time i thought i had a chance was in pre-season because Verduk, <laughs> if anything had to do without a football, you can forget it. The big man was disinterested. He did not want to know. And we used to do this thing called tens. And it was literally 10 lengths of the football field. It was a kilometre run. And we used to have to get in a certain time frame. And we did that about two or three times. Now, O'Leary said, if you don't do it the first time in the in a certain time, you'll do extras at the end. And Vaduk said to him, mate, look at the size of me, I ain't going to be able to do this. And Olivi said, well, you will run day and night until you do. And he says, and if you don't do it, you won't play first game of the season. And Viduc says, yes, I will, because I'm your best player here. Now, <laughs> at the time, I'm looking, the arrogant git, how dare he say that? But he was absolutely spot on. He didn't get in the time frame, but guess who played first
1: game of the season, Dave? Mark. <laughs> so he should have been the best player in the world, along with Harry. Yeah right. So he was that. Do you think? So he, he was that relaxed, but did that did that cost him? It, for me, I don't know whether Luke will agree with this
2: or not. It'll be interesting to know his thoughts. Harry trained damn hard. He was a professional. Um, he kept, you know, he was like he says, a, a great lad. We were we used to do everything together. He was a next door neighbour. But Harry gave me a, a whole new mindset in the professionalism that you had to take on board to be a player. And do all the extras and stay out and just kick balls around. Whereas with Dukes, on the other hand, he would jump the fence. Um, and he's, you know, he, he was the, the last one in, the first one to leave. He It was just such a natural ability. And I really feel like if he had had that mindset where he could train and practice, he could have been one of the best in the world because he was still up there. And he <laughs> his lack of professionalism off the field was, you know, like it was just, it was a natural ability and, you know, you can't make players. Players are born, and Dukes was born a footballer.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with you there, mate. I think, um, like you say, H, H was gifted, and he, he was naturally gifted as well. But he he worked, and he was professional. And uh, and you talk about Duke's being relaxed. I remember when I when I went back to Middlesbrough after I left, because I didn't play with him there. He came to Middlesbrough after I left. I went back there, and um, and the Kitley and was there and I said, oh, I said, oh, good to see you, you know. I said, oh, how's Dukes been going? How is he? And they go off. Oh, if he was any more laid back, he'd fall over. That was their comment. <laughs> um he, he he just he just cruised. He was um he was like like Bridget nailed it there, just saying he was it was so naturally gifted. I mean, I think that was where I think hitting got the best out of him in terms of the national team and the setup was by giving him the responsibility of the captaincy, which I thought was a masterstroke. I think giving him that responsibility um, got that little bit more out of him, and I think that was, that was the best year that he had in the green and gold. I wish, um, it, sorry,
2: Dave and Luke, I wish I'd known that information, Luke, um, many years ago. Because you remember when the Dukes went to Newcastle United and Alan Shearer got the job. Yeah, and he had he had the Alan had the tough job of keeping Newcastle in the in the Premier League, and I'll never forget. He, I spoke to Alan. He rang us up and he said, "Listen," he said, um, "you were with Mark Beduka." He said, "Bridgey said, I've never seen a talent quite like this guy. What he can do, he can keep us up." He says, "But how do I, how do I get, how do I get the most out of him every week?" And I, I didn't have the answer. I said to him, "I said, I don't know." I said, "Because some days he's unplayable, and you won't see the big man for a couple yeah. of games." And if I'd have known that info, I would have said, "Alan, make him captain now, mate," and he could possibly. <laughs> Alan believed that Mark Beduka alone could have single-handedly kept Newcastle in the division because of his ability. Now, if that's coming from a Newcastle number nine who scored 260 goals in the Premier League, that's kudos to the highest level.
1: It, it is indeed. It is indeed. Look, how did the captaincy change him? What did he do differently? Was it just an individual thing on the part Externally, the Viduka aura still remains today. You can just tell the way people love watching anything from the archive. But what was the aura like inside the camp and how did the captaincy change that?
0: Yeah, look, Dukes was he. He wasn't the most vocal captain, but he. Um, I think he he felt then that he had that um, obviously the armband, and felt that he had to then lead by example even more so. Whereas before he was just a naturally gifted number nine who would do his thing, but he felt then he had that little bit more responsibility on the team, on the on the country, on on his teammates. Um, and like I said, I think hitting just just mattered. I think he was like like said about Shearer there, just obviously looking at him and going. Like, people couldn't understand why he could never do what he was doing sometimes at club level for the national team. Um, couldn't score as many goals. And, and I think Henny just, just unlocked that by giving him that responsibility and, and he took it on. I mean, he, he really did take it on. And, and I felt, um, you know, I don't know, the boys respected him so much. Um, you know, he's so laid back, but he's so well liked and respected. Um, a little bit like a Josip Skoko, who's the quiet one around the group and that, but they always were there training and they led by example. So, yeah, it was a masterstroke. And, you know, like I say, the Dukes, uh, that, that World Cup, I thought was phenomenal. Luke, did
2: you ever see him get angry? No, uh, never. Say, I, I saw a couple of times, there was one with Martin Keown where he had a big ding-dong and he, he start, the Dukes started hitting his own backside you know like Racket ralph the kids cartoon carrot that smashes everything with his fists <laughs> and Viduk started hitting his backside and we thought oh the big man like this this must be his um his telltale sign when he's losing it and uh, i'll never forget after that every time we saw Viduks at training or you know, when he when he, <laughs> when he got the shits, and he started hitting his bum cheek with his right fist you know the, the place would just everybody'd run run away from him cuz they, <laughs> they didn't want the rap of the big man so it doesn't come out very often.
1: When it does, stay clear, man. <laughs> what about, I mean, we ran a, a goal the other day and it was Kewl to Voduka. And it just brought so much, so many memories back um, about those great days. I know, Bridget, you, 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 you were good mates with with Harry. Uh, we know all about his talent. We know about his work rate. How hard was it for you to see him with the injuries that he had? Because you talk about Vodukes could have been best in the world with a little bit of a different attitude. But Harry, with a bit more luck, wouldn't have been that far behind. Yeah, I was was devastated for
2: Harry because I look back at the youth team, I don't, uh, the youth team, the Leeds team that were young. And I don't know whether it was something that we all did in our younger days at Leeds United that wasn't monitored correctly. Like I say, when we went to Bolton Wanderers, um, the science and everything behind it with Sam Adyke was on a different level. And I look back at Leeds and you go through the the injuries that players sustained. I, I was nearly injured out of the game. Jonathan Woodgate went on to have serious injuries after that and never really got back to the heights after Real Madrid. Michael Dubry, double Achilles rupture, Harry Kewell, Achilles and Groins, Woodgate, Groins, myself, MacPhail, um injured out of the game, Seth Johnson. And I'll I look back at that 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 um team and wonder what where it all went wrong in our was it something in our training? Because it's something that we all went on to have success with Leeds United. But after that, everybody seemed to deteriorate quite rapidly over the next two or three, four years.
1: Have you guys spoken about that, Bridgie? Is that something that you've, all, you've sort of pieced the pieces of the puzzle together? No, I think it's when
2: we've got a bit older, mate, and we've started becoming a bit more mature and, mature and sensible that we've <laughs> actually worked out something was seriously wrong. And a few of the boys have. We have talked about that on the WhatsApp groups that we're in. Um, and saying, I wonder if it was something when we look back that just wasn't getting monitored enough and we were just told to go out and play as many games and do as many weights as possible. Uh, so it would be a, it would be an interesting, um, what do we say, is it a, a, a case Research. for people to, to look into back in the day, whether it was something, you know. Uh, but Harry should have been when he went to Liverpool. I think there was two things that upset Harry um, and his progress was the the injuries and the you know he was looked after i think it was bernie mandic um, mm. i think that that was another thing that it wasn't wasn't good in the best interests of harry i always had issues with the agent that he had at the time um and it, it, you know he upset a lot of Leeds united fans because of the move that he didn't how much money went didn't go to Leeds united so there was always that that issue as well i think it affected harry he was sheltered away too much but uh, the injuries hugely and it was It wasn't until Harry went to Galatasaray that his his, um, career really kick-started again. He started enjoying his football and scoring goals like like the Harry Cule of old.
1: Luke, he was a real talisman and superstar in Australian football. Um, did he have a similar sort of stature in the dressing room? Did you guys look to him as a as your real match winner? And it sort of peaked, I guess, in 2006 with the way that Hiddink, you know, tried to use him while he wasn't 100% fit. What was he like, uh, you know, within the national setup?
0: Yeah, look, Hiddink is, a, I think, one of our most gifted players in Australia and you know, everyone knew the qualities and that he could win games for you. He was he was the the real talent of the group. Um, and I think you know he was he was pretty quiet and kept to himself. Once um if he knows you, then he'll open up and relax. Um, but I mean, obviously at the time you had sort of it him, Lucas Neal, and Timmy Cahill, and obviously in that with their agents trying to trying to sort of build up who's the the profile and the the picture boy of Australian football. And and I think um you know interesting, Bridget touched on Bernie Mandich. I think. He was pushing H down that down that road, um, probably more so than H actually wanted to, because H H is just a football. He, he w- wouldn't go t- really chasing the media. I think that was more Bernie doing that for him. Um, you know, H did his talking on the football pitch, and uh, that's where he did it best. And you talk about game I, I a changers. H. H.
2: Harry could turn a game on its head at any point. You might be having a quiet game, and then all of a sudden he would get the ball. And he would just do something and you'd kind of stand there. I remember in training just going, did he really just do that? And then there was games where he could just turn it on. And when he was in the zone, you know, the way he glided past players, it was, there's only so many players can drift with the ball and travel with the ball when they look like it belongs there. Zidane was one of them. Ryan Giggs could do it in full motion. And when I watched Harry, um, it was just poetry in motion.
0: Mate. It was beautiful to watch. We say that he could do it by himself. He didn't. He didn't need someone to create something for him. He could create his own his own moment in the game, and that that was the difference. You know, you look at someone like Timmy Cahill, who needs someone to create those moments for him in the box, whereas Cahill will go and create them himself. Yeah, you
1: knew him. You knew him well, though, Bridgie, as well. Um, H- Harry, the man, Harry the the other all all particularly the 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 man you knew from from your day back at Leeds.
2: Yeah, just a just a great guy. I mean the. The, the thing that we used to do, we you know, we were very isolated at least. Like I say, we did have a good team bonding when they when one, one went out, we all went out. It was great. But you know, having a next door neighbour, I didn't have any brothers or sisters. I was an only child. And to build up a relationship with, with Harry, my next door neighbour, we were just young lads enjoying life and playing like Luke says, we just loved playing football. And when we weren't playing football, we were competing on the golf course, we were competing on the computer who can eat a pizza the fastest? It was just—it <laughs> was a constant competition, and it was um, something I look back, back on, which is you know just really fun memories. We we had something off the field and on the field, um, which was unique, and there's not many people. If I look back at the '99 2000 season, me and Harry were laughing because it was either he he was either setting me up or I was setting him up for the goals. It was we just had a communication. That I've never, never had with a, another striker that we that we really embraced, and I think it was just because we were so close, and understood each other um, off the field as well. And the, but I'll never forget there was a, a wine company in Australia had sent Harry a six six pack of these um, wines, and they were actually named Kuel. Now I found that hilarious because nobody was going to make a bloody wine from Newcastle called Bridges or from <laughs> Cunlins because you know it's a, it would be an absolute shambles. And the guy had asked Harry to sample them and give him a verdict on what he thought of them and it might go into production. And I reckon over a, a weekend that we had off on the Saturday and the Sunday, me and I think me and Harry polished off these wines within um, forty eight hours and couldn't remember a thing. And when the guy wanted a verdict, Harry rang us up, he was like, Can you remember what that wine tastes like? I said, I've got no idea. Why? He said, I've got none left and the guy wants the guy wants to <laughs> give him a review. <laughs>
0: And didn't was right. you, know, did you oh, I did, man. No. I did. <laughs> Let, let's, let's be honest, let's be honest, Bridgie. H didn't drink and you drank them all. That's why he had to call you tough. <laughs> oh, That's why was he right. asked me. You're right.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Good stuff, guys. Good and 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 great memories. Um, great memories as well. Now. Now, it would be remiss of us, Bridgie, uh, given that we also have Optus Sports Two Sharp Reds podcast to talk about one particular uh, player that was a teammate of Luke's and an opponent of yours. Who would I be talking about? I wonder.
2: Could that be the bald, receding, big-nosed goalkeeper? Um, he looks like the BFG. Is that Mark Swartz's podcast you're on about? <laughs> Speaking
1: of wines, uh, I tell you what, the- I'll- Go on, Swarty. take it away. You, what, do you want, go with him. What,
0: what do you want? What do you want to know, Bridgie mate? I spent many, many years playing alongside him, obviously at Middlesbrough um, when I first went over, and then and obviously ten years in the national team. So, mate, let me let me know what you want. Well, what I, what I will say, Luke. Right, there was a game,
2: and Swarty mentioned on his Two Sharp Reds podcast, I scored against the big man, and we were at Elland Road. I scored a goal. I sent Swarty the wrong way. He dives the near post, and I put it the opposite side. So, I made him look an absolute mug. But the best thing about the goal was we scored that goal because Swarty tried to kick the ball long and he he couldn't and it went to one of our midfielders and we basically counterattacked off Swarty's goal kick. It was um, so he actually got an assist in the goal, mate, because he couldn't so, so what, the ball. So what was he
0: like? So so why am I not surprised, mate? Because in those uh, those early years, I think uh, I remember at the at the borough. Look, he, he was uh, he took me under his wing. Uh, he'd obviously signed there early and he was in the first team and I was a young kid coming through and you know, obviously being an Aussie, uh, you know, we were pretty close. And, and I was sitting up in the stands and he was, he was playing, obviously, so I'm up in the stands and, and every time the ball come back, he was shanking him, he couldn't kick. And the, 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 the home crowd were booing him. I'm listening to the supporters all around me. I'm like, F and this, 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 to this, that, and the other. And I felt terrible. <laughs> and, um he just he just couldn't he couldn't kick and um you know credit to him that's 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 what he worked on and you know I think by the time he got to thirty five his kicking was better.
1: Brilliant. How have I how have I endorsed <laughs> this this absolute roasting of an ornamental game? What, <laughs> what is going
2: on here? Uh, what I will say, Dave, I've got to redeem myself. You know what it is? I had never met Mark Swartzer, Luke, look um over the years, played against him and seen him and all the rest of it. And since we've been working with Optus Sport. You never know what you're going to get with footballers because there's a lot of there's a lot of egos in the game. And do you know what it is? I'm going to give him credit here. It was so refreshing to actually meet a man that had done so many things and won as many things as he had done. In just to find him that he was so down to work and it was such a joy to work with. So there you go. I've, I can I do have feelings I've, and I'm giving him a big rap there.
1: Okay, we'll cut that bit out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Luke, you and and Mark, I mean, uh, particularly this was an era before I was working, you guys were playing almost every Socceroos game I can remember. Um, He he must have been a real, um, we talk about talisman with, with Harry, but Mark must have been a real fixture and leader in that Socceroos dressing room in the sense that he was just always there. Yeah,
0: he was. He was. Look, for, for me throughout my career, it almost, almost seemed like that he was always there. Um, like I said, from those early years at Middlesbrough, and, and going into the national team, actually hadn't been with him at Middlesbrough, it made that um, transition easier as well. He he really took me under his wing, and, and people used to call him my dad. Um, in the end, geez, we've got the same and hair as well. So, um, <laughs> but no, he he was. He, he was a leader. He was um he was an ultimate professional. You know, seeing the way he changed his diet and how he just kept going and getting better and better, literally like a fine red wine. Um, and he was phenomenal to to have him. You know, playing in the backboard, having behind you. You know, he, he was a he was an unbelievable goalkeeper and a, and a great bloke off the pitch. There's no doubt about that. And a face for radio. Yeah, well, haven't we all, mate? <laughs>
1: There's a re- there's a reason this is a podcast from our three bedrooms and that we don't have the screen going. The, ra- <laughs> the, the rating would be far higher than PG, let me tell you, the way it's going at the moment. <laughs> no comment. Uh, boys, to, to wrap up, just to get a, a concluding thought because, um, I mean, we could be... I'm am a nerd. I could be talking to you guys for the next three hours, but we won't we won't put everyone to sleep uh, with, with with our ramblings. We've got a whole month or more to fill. Um, but I'd love just to get. I mean, I'm just a bit inspired by Bridgie's jersey collection, which he showed. Um, on, on social media through the week and just to get something from this era that we're talking about sort of around 2005 six seven whether it's an opponent uh, a coach a teammate just something that you may have collected like a jersey um, that you take with you from from that time and uh, as I said we've got a lot we've got plenty more stories to go through the next month but just to conclude this episode um, just something from this particular time of your career that uh, that, that is worth sharing take it away Luke.
0: Yeah, well, I guess, um, you know, unfortunately, I had a few few shirts from 2006. I changed every game, um, shirts stolen, um, one of which was, was from Adriano after we played against Brazil. And, and the thing that reminds me of that is that it, I think it was a triple XL shirt. It was massive. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, unfortunately, I had a few of them uh, taken away. So, but uh, so be it. You
1: had a few taken away.
0: Yeah, they got stolen, mate. They got stolen. Someone, um, I had, had a few kept in my parents' place and, and I guess someone had wind of it. They literally broke into my parents' place and took only the shirt. They didn't oh, touch the TVs, okay. nothing, just the shirt. So uh,
1: something that you can't replace, unfortunately. No, but surely pretty easy to identify. If, we ever, if anyone out there sees someone with an Adriano authentic jersey swimming on them, we know where to return it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What about you, Bridge? You just want from that era from your from your collection you shared with us the other day?
2: Um, it would, I think, it would be the Costa Curta of AC Milan, and just that 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 Champions League journey that I went on. You, you know, when you're playing against teams like that in Barcelona, I still pinch myself, mate, and just think, what well, you know, how was I even gracing the same field as some of these players? I have got Maldini on the left and Shevchenko up front. And um, I raced around and tried to get every one of their shirts. And um, it's not a bad one when you look around and you, you realise that everybody else is swapping jerseys and Costa-Curtas was still up for grabs. So I managed to get that one, mate. So, yeah, it was a big AC Milan. You know, I, I loved watching them over the years and the thing that I was playing against them. So that's something that I'll, I'll cherish. Now, um, the ironic side of that is, Dave, I would love people always say, what did they do with your shirts? Well, <laughs> I what costa Curta did with my he threw mine into the Leeds end with the Leeds fans. Obviously, he thought, who the hell is Bridget? And he it. So um, I never really lived that down from the Leeds lads, and that's, that's why it'll stick in my memory
1: forever. So, oh, brilliant. Boys, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to just uh, spend an hour with you guys, walking down memory lane, and, and uh, hopefully for everyone out there that's... Um, just look at us a little pick-me-up, a little football fix, something just to, to to keep you busy over the next little while. And we've got more to come. We'll be doing more like this over the next few weeks, different topics, um, different memories, and uh, and just enjoy a, fo- a football in a different way while we can. Um, Luke, stay safe, stay well.
0: Thanks, mate. You too. Everyone, keep safe. And Bridgie as well.
1: Yeah, cheers,
2: everybody. Um, good good chat. And just, just a little message there for everybody. That's when it isn't possibly in isolation or staying indoors just don't forget keep your keep your mental health um you've always got people you can phone and chat to and also make sure you do some form of exercise just to keep ticking over in these tough times and then um, you stay safe you two boys as well thanks man
1: here 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 we all got to be in yeah. it together Everyone out there, normally, as I normally end each podcast, I say, until the next one, enjoy your football. Sadly, we can't do that. But more importantly, until the next Pod. thank you for joining. Stay safe, look after yourself, and uh, we'll bring you another one next week. Cheers.